Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lizenby. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. Happy new moon. Yes, uh, new moon in <laughs> Pisces. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> How are you feeling? You know, I sounded really happy when I said um, happy new moon, <laughs> but in reality, I'm a bit scattered. I believed um, you. <laughs> I know. It sounded convincing. I was even convinced for a moment. Um, But yeah, I'm just scattered. I think it has to do a lot with just the state of the world, you know, more than a moon phase. But but in general, new moons are sort of low energy times for me. So I don't know, after we record today, I'm envisioning a nap or at least some writing in the greenhouse. How about you? Love that. Always um, the nap advocate over here. Mm -hmm. I'm a little Mm -hmm. bit wobbly. I think kind of like new moon hangover, so to speak. But um, yeah, I'm just I'm happy to be here today talking with you about this topic that we have here. (laughs) Yeah. You want to tell everyone what we're talking about today? Yeah, so we're going to discuss the Fae, um, and I've been looking forward to this almost springtime conversation for a while now. Same here. And I know in Season 1, Episode 17, I believe, mm-hmm. we had an episode dedicated to the Fae where we talked about the Fae's overlap with nature deities and ancestral spirits, and you gave us a lesson on the Duende, um, which was amazing. But what are you going to focus on today? Yeah, oh my gosh, the Duende, they're so, so close to my heart. Um, but today I'm going to speak a little bit about Queen Mab and the Cottingly Fairies and how to work with belief in fairies. And what about you, Kristen? I can't wait to hear that. I think I want to touch on the vast realm of fairyhood and talk about fairies as shapeshifters and animals. Mm -hmm. I think if we grew up watching Peter Pan, which I'm sure a lot of us did, we can't help but think of Tinkerbell or our favorite, Fern Gully. But, you know, as we know, fairies take many forms. And while I was doing research for today's episode, it made me reconsider how I describe these entities. So Kate, if someone were to ask, how would Mm. you define or identify fairies? Mm. So I think to me, um, fairies are nature and otherworldly spirits and beings. They are mercurial, watchful, tricksters even sometimes. Um, They inhabit and protect the elements, and they are guardians of the liminal and their own realm and world. They are winged sometimes, but they're also just beyond straightforward definition to me. How do you see the Fae? I like that. I think 
A fairy is a magical being Mm -hmm. that lives at least part of the time in the other world, or they're at least really close to that liminal space. Um, I know this is like a really flexible, fluid, maybe even vague definition, which I think is perfect when you're trying to describe something that feels so slippery, like fairies. Mm -hmm. I looked up some official definitions and learned that the word fairy originates from the Latin word fata or fate which we're all familiar with as in, you know, destiny, but it also references a state of enchantment, which is likely why witches and fairies have so much overlap. sort of entity, fairyhood varies from culture to culture, from one era and civilization to another, which means sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, occasionally helpful if you're a kind soul in distress, but they can also be meddlesome. And in certain stories, interacting with fae folk or interfering with their homes or way of living could prove fatal. I think we all know the bad luck that follows cutting down a fairy tree, specifically an elder or hawthorn or rowan, but I think any tree can be a fairy tree. Because there are plenty of fairy tales that tell the story of a farmer who buys a field, cuts down all the trees, rips up the wildflowers, and tills the land so he can plant corn or some plant that leaches a lot of nutrients and energy from the soil. And then, mysteriously, nothing will grow in his field except parsley, and he falls ill and dies. Mm, a tale of warning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was in our Tales of Ash episode that we talked about um, the, the car company DeLorean cutting down an ash tree in a field, and then subsequently their business suspiciously fell apart. <laughs> mm, the cautionary tale. And, you know, we see this cautionary tale a lot in English and Celtic folklore, and they almost always describe the size of these fairies, which is very small, you know, like Tinkerbell or maybe palm size. And fun fact, in the past, rural communities insisted it was bad luck to refer to a fairy as a fairy and instead referred to them as good people, good neighbors, the strangers, little people, or we folk, because anything else was considered an insult. In these cases, fairies were like earth guardians, so if you worked the land, you worked with the fairies. They were light beings who lived amongst trees and flowers, and even though they were usually impeccably dressed in bright colors, you never really got a good look at them. It was usually just a glimpse out of the corner of your eye. Maybe that has something to do with fairies being shapeshifters and able to take the form of whatever they like. Plenty of stories speak of fairy goddesses who look no different than humans, Maybe just a bit more beautiful and always with a magnetic aura. I always think of the Celtic goddess Brigid, and I also recently discovered Kleena, the fairy queen of Cork and queen of the Banshees. Um, sounds amazing. I've never heard of her. I know, me neither. And 
right now I'm doing all sorts of research on her because of my ancestral ties to Cork, her sacred region. Mm. Beyond goddesses, some say that fairies prefer to take the shape of an animal, usually a hare or a fox or a bird. There are plenty of folktales about hunters chasing a rabbit or sometimes a deer they've shot but didn't kill, only to have it magically transform into a beautiful but injured woman. In other stories, like this one from the book called Shapeshifters by John Kachuba, it talks about the Miriosh, an entity that could take the form of a Kelpie, which is a water horse, and then switch back and forth between other farm animals like a pig, a cow, sheep, or horse as a part of a prank. So dipping our toes into the shadow side of fairies here, um, the most famous story involves a farmer who finds the Miriosh disguised as an abandoned lamb. The farmer brings it home, but then when he goes out to the barn to check on it the next day, he sees a cow. The next day, it's transformed into a horse. On the third day, it's a lamb again. The lamb starts laughing right as the farmer realizes all of his animals have been killed. So, dark turn here. The farmer runs to grab his gun, but the lamb runs off, but not before kidnapping the farmer's three daughters and leaving a gold necklace in their place. There's also the story of the fox woman, similar to the Croatian folktale, The She-Wolf, which is on the Magic and Alchemy blog if anyone wants to read. In this story, both women are half human, half animal, but they either give up their fur pelts or they were taken, usually by their future lover. And these women sort of temporarily forget their magical primal sides and the other world they used to know so well. But don't worry, listeners. In pretty much all of these stories, the women get their pelts back and either choose to return to the other world for good or, you know, some of them split their time between realms. In the same shapeshifters book I mentioned earlier, it talks about Margot fairies, which take the form of a snake. Usually, these fairies are benevolent and protective, but they can strike if provoked. Legend says they dwell near rocks or caves, megaliths, stone circles, or anywhere there is rumored to be treasure. While in some stories, fairies transform into animals to evade capture or to disguise themselves, sometimes the transformation happens annually or cyclically and they have no control over it. In these stories, the transformation is seen as more of a weakness. It makes them vulnerable. There's a Breton tale that talks about a man who encounters a Margot fairy while he's working in the fields one day. And she tells him at dawn the next morning, he is to take a wash tub to a specific bridge. He'll see a green snake, and he is to put the tub over the snake and sit on it until the sun sets that evening. The man does exactly as she says, and when he removes the tub at sunset, the snake has transformed into a maiden. We learn that she is the daughter of the fairy woman, and once per year, she transforms into a snake. If the man hadn't agreed to sit on the tub all day, she likely would have died. So to repay the man for his kind deed, they shower him in gold, silver, and all the treasure to last him the rest of his life. 
But the Margot fairies are not always, always kind. People claim that sometimes they take a liking to a shepherd or a young man working the land, and sometimes they will lure them into their caves, and then they're never seen again. At this point, we just assume they've taken up residency in the other world. I just love, Kristen, how fairies and their stories kind of lend themselves to shape-shifting because it just supports this transcendence of both boundaries and of definition. Absolutely. And, you know, this is where we see the crossover between fairies and witches Mm. because witches were often accused of being shape-shifters. And in many of the witch trials that took place in the past, there was often a mention of the accused being a witch, but also a fairy, which I think is really interesting. It is. You know, I know I spoke about this in the earlier episode, but working with the Fae was kind of one of the first magical practices that I had as a witch. Um, my grandma taught me about flower fairies. They were a big part of our gardening practice together. And I had stacks of books that are still in my childhood room in Michigan. I so wished that I had them here for this episode. Um but they detailed at great length working with fairies, how to see them, um, and we would build fairy houses and structures in the garden and even would correspond with the fae by writing letters. Um, my amazing mother wrote back to my sister and I as fairies named Lily and Buttercup, and this communication just stoked such a deep interest in magic inside of me. Um, if you were to speak to my friends from growing up, they would tell you that I had like decorated these little jewelry boxes, um, like the little cardboard ones that like earrings mm-hmm. come in, you know, and I would build homes inside of them for the fae, and then bring them with me in my backpack to school and to sleep overs it's amazing <laughs> it's so much fun there's like glitter everywhere and like they would get sure. get loose and we would have to like find them in the house and oh my gosh my it's precious my friend meg still talks about it but <laughs> my aim handle was also flower fairy 11 so of course yeah of course it was <laughs> one of these like first stories of fairies that captured my imagination was the story of the cottingly fairies so do you know it I do. And this story is so interesting. I'm happy that you're going to share it. It really is. Um, So for those that don't know, the Cottingly Fairies are a series of five photographs taken by Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths. And these two women were young cousins who lived together in Cottingly in England. So when the first photographs were taken in 1917, Elsie was 16 and Frances was nine. So the two girls often played together beside the beck at the bottom of the garden. And this, you know, drove their mothers crazy because they would always come back to the house with wet feet and clothes, which is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and Francis and Elsie would tell um, the woman um, that they went down to the beck to see the fairies. And of course, um, their parents were like, no. So uh, to prove it, Elsie borrowed her father's camera. 30 minutes went by and um, they were described as returning triumphantly. They had captured photos of the fairies. And so Elsie's father, Arthur, was an amateur photographer. He had his own dark room. And so he developed the photos to find Francis behind a bush in the foreground. Um, and then there were the four 
fairies where they were dancing. So her father dismissed these as fake. And then two months later, the camera was borrowed again. And this time, Elsie returned with a photo um, of her and this about one foot tall gnome. So her father still believed the photos were faked. However, his wife um, believed the photos to be authentic. So towards the end of 1918, Frances sent a letter to her friend Johanna Parvin um, back in Cape Town, which is where Frances had lived for most of her life. Um, and in it was the photo of herself with the fairies. And the letter said, I am learning French, geometry, cookery, and algebra at school now. Dad came home from France the other, other week after being there 10 months, and we all think the war will be over in a few days. I'm sending two photos, one of me, uh, or both of me, one of me in a bathing costume in our backyard, while the other is me with some fairies. Elsie took that one. And on the back she wrote, It is funny, I never used to see them in Africa. It must be too hot for them there. Mm. So these pictures then came to the attention of the Sherlock Holmes author and writer, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who later used them in an article that he wrote on fairies that he had been commissioned to write for the Strand magazine in 1920. So he wrote... The recognition of their existence will jolt the material 20th century mind out of its heavy ruts in the mud and will make it admit that there is a glamour and mystery to life. Having discovered this, the world will not find it so difficult to accept that spiritual message supported by physical facts which have already been put before it. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a spiritualist, and so he was thrilled about these photographs and interpreted them as clear and visible evidence of psychic phenomena. Public reaction to the photos was mixed. You know, some accepted these images as genuine, while others believed them to be fake. And at one point, they even took them to Kodak, the camera company, to ask their opinion. And, and Kodak came out and said that the photos were real and had not been tampered with which I just love thinking of Kodak working with fairies. Mm -hmm. You know, the interest in the Cottingley fairies gradually declined after 1921. Both girls married, they lived abroad, and yet the photographs continued to hold the public imagination. So in 1966, a reporter from the Daily Express newspaper traced Elsie, who had then returned to the UK, uh, and Elsie, in speaking with them, left open the possibility that she believed she had photographed her thoughts, and the media once again became interested. In the early 1980s, Elsie and Francis admitted that the photographs were faked uh, using cardboard cutouts of fairies copied from a popular children's book at the time, but Francis maintained that the fifth and final photograph was genuine, and that though a few of the photographs had been faked, they told the reporters that they had always seen real fairies. As of 2019, the photographs and the cameras from the Cottingley Fairies are in the collection of the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, England. I would love to see them. Sounds amazing. Um, and there was a movie about the Cottingley Fairies that came out in 1997. Um, I was obsessed with it as a child. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend. It's very 90s, but it's called Fairy Tale, A True Story. Um, and if you haven't seen the photos, you can just Google Cottingley Fairies and, and check them out. They're very, very beautiful. 
Yeah, I actually didn't know that about the fifth photograph um, being real, but mm-hmm. now I'm going to have to look them up again and compare because I do know some of them, but I can't remember which one is the fifth photograph. Yeah, you can find actually like a big um, a, a, a segment like online, a PDF of the Sir Conan um Sir Arthur Conan Doyle book that he did about mm-hmm. it. And and so there's like a full series on there, which is actually really, really quite nice. Cool. Um, and, you know, as far as working with the Fae, I've kind of always seen Queen Mab, like the Queen of the Fairies, as a bit of a deity, um, kind of like the fairy goddesses you were speaking about earlier. And mm-hmm. I, I did write a magic and alchemy blog on the Tamed Wild site where I speak a little bit more about how to work with her. But I wanted to bring her in a little bit to this episode. So appearing in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Queen Mab is described by Mercutio as, Oh, then I see Queen Mab hath been with you. She is the fairy's midwife, and she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone. In this speech, I've always imagined a fairy queen who helps deliver dreams into existence, riding a chariot of roses and braiding horses' hair at night. Some say that her name, Mab, comes from the Welsh for child, while others trace the etymology back to beloved one. In tales, she sometimes sits beside King Oberon instead of Queen Titania from Midsummer's Night's Dream. What is certain, though, is that the history of folk tales have fallen in love with Queen Mab. It's often thought that Queen Mab and Queen Maeve may be of similar folklore origin or thread and linked to the moor again. If this is true, then Queen Mab may be related to the She or the Tuathidadanan, which is the same place we hear tales of Queen Maeve and the cattle raid of Cooley, which I believe you did a story about for Magic and Alchemy as well, Kristen. Did I? I I might have. I can't remember, but I'm familiar with the story. I'm going to look after this, but I'm pretty, pretty (laughs) sure. (laughs) But how do you work with the Fae um, in your own magical practice, Kristen? You know, I have a fairly passive approach when it comes to the Fae. I've heard people say that you should never try to work with the Fae. Like, if they want to work with you, they'll let you know, but don't go chasing them. And that's always in the back of my mind. But then again, you know, to each their own. But I think my biggest contribution to them involves caring for the land. I'm a big gardener, as I'm sure everyone knows, but I also believe in wild gardens or just bits like wild bits of land that you maintain, Mm -hmm. but don't necessarily try to claim or transform into something other than what they already are. I bury spell bottles beneath a specific tree on my property. And when I feed the spell bottle um, with whatever, you know, fresh water or charged water, I will always leave something extra out for the fae. Or, you know, any other nature or ancestral spirits that might be watching. And when I do garden and I'm making these changes to the land, I am very aware of it. So I try to choose plants that speak to fairies. I know they are big fans of ferns and fruit trees and foxgloves. And I think incorporating these into our green spaces is a nice way to show them that they're welcome and you know, we want to work with them and we want them to be happy there. Mm, what about you? I what do you do that. in the city? 
You know, I think for me, it's uh, less calling on them in a magical practice and more like building a relationship as a part of connecting to a larger sort of magic for me. Like, I feel like the Mm -hmm. Fae just love the attention and the acknowledgement, but also not to like a level of disturbing them or more than that. And I love teaching children, my nieces, friends, kids about fairies, because I feel like passing on that knowledge is an offering of sorts to the Fae. Um, Mm -hmm. putting out gifts for them, building earth altars or little houses, especially when I'm at my mom's or grandparents in Michigan, because that's really where I feel them the most. Um, and I know you mentioned Peter Pan earlier, but that scene with Tinkerbell where the crowd has to chant, I do believe in fairies. I do. I do. Always gives Mm -hmm. me the truth bumps. And I believe that belief in fairies is one of the most magical things. And it's so widespread across culture, time, folklore, and magic. And in that article about the book that I mentioned earlier, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Coming of the Fairies, he discusses the photos of the Cottingley fairies, but also has this whole section citing independent evidence for fairies with details and accounts all across England of the fairies that people have seen. And not to say that seeing is believing, but to know that if you too have fairies at the bottom of your garden, you're not alone. Beautiful. I think that's all the time we have for today. So thank you, Kate, and also listeners for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lizenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram, at Tamed Wild, or on the blog, magicandalchemy.com. Tune in to next week's episode where we talk with a very special guest about spring magic. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be or something better. Until next time.